Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Flying private to overturn the election? The lead starts right now. We have a brand new CNN report revealing how Trump operatives flew fake elector ballots to D.C. in a last-ditch effort to overturn the 2020 election. We'll bring you those details and the audio tapes detailing their plot next. Plus, Nikki Haley under scrutiny over controversial comments she made on the campaign trail, the exchange she had with one man in New Hampshire, and how her campaign is responding today. We'll take you on the road. And the house where four University of Idaho students were brutally murdered was demolished just hours ago. Why some of the victims' families were pushing for it to be torn down after the suspect's trial. Welcome to The Lead, everyone. I'm Bianca Goldriga in for Jake Tapper. We start with breaking news in our law and justice lead. CNN has obtained exclusive recordings that reveal a chaotic last-ditch effort by former President Trump's campaign to get fake elector ballots to D.C. They were trying to get the fake ballots to former Vice President Mike Pence in a final push to overturn the 2020 election. The plan involved a haphazard chain of messengers, staffers for two sitting Republican members of Congress, and talk of even chartering a private jet. All of this to ensure the fake ballots from Michigan and Wisconsin got to the Capitol in time for the Electoral College certification on January 6, 2021. Emails and recordings show new context in the dizzying scope of the unsuccessful fake electors plot, a major piece of special counsel Jack Smith's criminal indictment against Trump. CNN's Marshall Cohen broke this story for us, and he's joining me now. So, Marshall, what are we learning from these new recordings? Hey, Biana, we've known bits and pieces of this story, but now we're getting the full picture. And it comes from Ken Chesborough, who in many ways was the architect of the fake electors plot. CNN has obtained recordings of his recent interview with Michigan investigators and hundreds of emails that he also turned over. They are revealing the last minute scramble on the eve of January 6th to get those fake certificates to Washington, D.C. Listen to this. This is a clip of Ken Chesborough describing what happened when Trump campaign officials realized that those critical ballots from Michigan, Wisconsin were stuck in the mail. The general counsel of the Trump campaign is freaked out that Roman reported that the Michigan votes are still in the sorting facility in Michigan, which doesn't look like they're going to get to Pence in time. So the, the general counsel of the campaign was alarmed and and was chartering what well, they didn't have to charter a jet but they did commercial this is like yeah so this is a high level decision yeah. to get the michigan and and wisconsin votes there to and they, they had to enlist a uh the, you know a, a u.s senator to to try to expedite it to get it to get it to uh, uh pence in time Remember, they needed to get those ballots to the House floor because they wanted Mike Pence to throw out Biden's real electors and replace them with Trump's fake electors. So in the end, the campaign didn't need to charter a jet. Staffers booked last minute tickets on commercial flights. 
but they ferried those ballots to Washington, D.C. on January 5th. And once they got to D.C., there was a series of handoffs and couriers that even included some help from Senator Ron Johnson's office. Those ballots eventually reached the U.S. Capitol in time, but Pence's team said they didn't want them. He refused to go along with the plan. That's fa fascinating new detail. Uh, Marshall, how does this all factor into Jack Smith's criminal case against Trump? Well, this episode is vaguely referenced in special counsel Smith's indictment against Trump. Sources tell CNN that some of the people who were involved in this, including the staffers who were on those flights, they've spoken to Smith's team. But it's not totally clear how many of these new details about the last-minute scramble will factor into President Trump's trial, which is scheduled for March. So let's go back to Chesbro because that's how you're learning a lot of this information. That's who we heard from in the audio tapes. He's now blaming the Trump campaign for his legal problems. What did he say about that? He's upset. You know, he thinks he got burned. And it is true that some Trump campaign lawyers told the January 6th committee that they basically washed their hands of the fake electors plot. But the emails that we've obtained show that at least some of them were involved in the 11th hour discussions about how to get the ballots to Pence. Here's Chesborough again telling Michigan prosecutors basically that in his view, he was thrown under the bus. They have the three top campaign lawyers in interviews with Congress claim they pulled out of this uh, on December 11th and I ran off and did it with Giuliani when in fact they were day-by-day uh, day coordinating the efforts of more than a dozen people with the GOP and with the Trump campaign. For them to basically say they had nothing to do with it and it's, it's because me and Giuliani, is, is, that's what really rankles. So that I could have avoided all this. So it's been, uh, it's been a real a lesson in um, not working with people that you don't know and uh, you're not sure you can trust because uh, it really went south on me. Biana, he says he learned the hard way, and that's probably why he's now cooperating with criminal prosecutors in Michigan, Wisconsin, and other key states where they tried to pull this off. Marshall Cohen, thank you so much for this new reporting. Uh, joining us now to discuss is Elliot Williams, CNN legal analyst and former federal prosecutor. Elliot, uh, that's quite the paper and I guess audio trail, too. What part of this, in your view, is most legally damning? Look, it's more evidence, uh, Biana, and you know, to, to state the obvious, more evidence is always a good thing because of the for prosecutors, of course, because of the fact that not everything is going to get into court. Now, Jack Smith is certainly building a case against the former president based on other statements others have made, documents, videos, whatever else. But now you have uh, more audio tapes that could be admitted into court. It's one thing for a jury to read a transcript or even hear someone talk about things that they heard somebody else say. It's another thing to hear voices. They have a sort of evocative effect in a courtroom, and that's where these uh, could be more could be valuable and powerful. Yeah, and as you just heard, Chesbro told Michigan prosecutors that the decision to get the fake ballots to D.C. was quote high level. What do you make of that term, high level? Yeah, everything comes down to intent in criminal prosecutions. We've talked about this uh, over the months or, frankly, years that, that these cases have been percolating. And prosecutors have to establish not just that an act happened, but that a defendant intended to commit the act and with criminal intent. Now, here, some of the things that are charged are conspiracy to obstruct a, a, a congressional proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States, offenses like that. And they have to know that the acts they're engaging in are either unlawful or violations of, of federal statutes or, 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 you know, or whatever else. Here, um, 
the furious attempts to move these ballots across state lines could be introduced as evidence showing the state of mind of not just the former president um, went up to him or people around him um, who knew what they were doing um, and attempting to take all efforts to get these uh, fake or alternate, as their argument is, ballots uh, to Washington, D.C. And so um, it can, this is evidence that could certainly speak to intent if it gets in. And this new reporting from Marshall Cohen, it comes on the eve of what's going to be a very busy January for the former president. Let's walk through the calendar. He'll need to appeal the Colorado decision, taking him off the 2024 ballot by January 4th. Then on January 9th, his legal team will argue the immunity claim in a D.C. appeals court. He's also got the civil fraud trial, of course, the Iowa caucuses in New Hampshire primary, as well as that civil trial in New York, which begins on January 16th. So let all of that sink in. Let's focus for right now on the immunity claim in D.C. What happens if the D.C. appeals court rules that Trump does not have immunity? Uh, if, well, um, if he does not have immunity, then he can certainly be prosecuted. Now, the question is, when would that ruling come? Now, in in court of appeals terms, they are moving at a breakneck pace. They will be hearing arguments on this case on January 9th, which is faster than most cases ever make it to argument. Now, regardless of what happens there, the Supreme Court will have an opportunity to review the case and maybe uh, hear it, which could slow any prosecution down weeks, if not months. This question of immunity is a very, very important one. And tying on this tied to this very question of fake ballots, because the the argument being made by the former president is that the crafting and solicitation of these alternate slates of electors uh, was itself an official act of the presidency, and therefore he was allowed to do it. So it's, it's a critical case that is being decided um, and being heard on, 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 on January 9th, uh, my dad's birthday. Um, but Happy birthday, needless dad. To say, thank you, birthday, to my dad. But needless to say, um, it... Whatever happens in that appeal could uh, dramatically slow down the potential March trial date for this Jack Smith prosecution of the former president for election interference. We'll be watching it closely as well as celebrating your father, Elliot Williams. Thank you. Coming up, hear Nikki Haley's controversial response to a question about the Civil War and the off-campus Idaho house where four college students were murdered last year was torn down earlier today. Why there are still major questions about that decision. That's next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
In our politics lead, Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley is working hard to walk back what she said and didn't say last night at a town hall in New Hampshire after an attendee called her out for not mentioning slavery in her response to a question about the Civil War. CNN's Eva McKen is on the campaign trail. Of course the Civil War was about slavery. We know that. That's unquestioned. Always the case. Nikki Haley playing cleanup today after this exchange yes, with a voter during a New Hampshire town hall Wednesday night. What was the cause of the United States Civil War? Well, don't come with an easy question or anything. I mean, I think the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run, the freedoms and what people could and couldn't do. After not mentioning slavery in her initial response, Haley acknowledging in interviews and campaign appearances the Civil War was about slavery. If you grow up in the South, it's a given that it's about slavery. To me, it was about but freedom. What do you do? It's, it's bigger than slavery. That was such a stain on our history. But what do you take from it going forward? The former South Carolina governor also claiming without evidence the questioner was a Democratic plant. The audience member who asked the question declined to share his full name or party affiliation when asked by reporters. It was definitely a Democrat plant. That's why I said, what does it mean to you? And if you notice, he didn't answer anything. The episode sparking swift blowback from Haley's primary rivals. I just think that this shows uh, this is not a candidate uh, that's ready for prime time. And Vivek Ramaswamy saying, when you try to be everything to everyone, you're nothing to anyone. President Joe Biden also weighing in, saying clearly it was about slavery. Haley's handling of the question also drawing fresh attention to her complicated public posture toward the Confederacy. I say that as a Southern governor who removed the Confederate flag off the state house grounds, and I say that as a proud American of how far we have come. CNN's K-File found in 2010, Haley said this about the Confederate flag. This is not something that is racist. This is something that is a tradition that people feel proud of. But in 2015, a shooting at a historically black church in Charleston spurred then-Governor Haley to call for the flag's removal from statehouse grounds. We heard about the true honor of heritage and tradition. We heard about the true pain that many had felt. The Confederate flag is coming off the grounds of the South Carolina Statehouse. And Bianca, this really draws into focus how Haley has operated her campaign, really in a play it safe mode, with very carefully crafted responses to these questions. That did not work this time around. I should note, though, that she is polling second in this state. She is doing strong here. Still uh, far behind former President Donald Trump, but well ahead Christ Christie and Ron DeSantis. And she continues to uh, busily campaign here. She'll be here in Grafton County uh, later today. And she was with Governor Sununu uh, earlier this afternoon. Biana. Eva McCann, thank you. Let's bring in our panel, Scott Jennings and Alencia Johnson. Thank you both for being here. Uh, so let's start with Nikki Haley. We don't know the identity of the attendee from last night's town hall. He didn't give his name to reporters, as we heard from Eva's reporting. But I want to play how Nikki Haley characterized him and his question in a radio interview from earlier this morning. Take a listen. Biden and the Democrats keep sending Democrat plants 
to do things like this, to get the media to react. We know when they're there. We know what they're doing. Why is Biden doing that? Why isn't he doing it to any other candidate? Scott, I want to get your take. Does it even matter if this question was posed by a Republican or a Democrat? And do you think her comments could hurt her with voters in the primary? Why is Joe Biden sending these people to trip me up with these sixth grade civics questions? How dare he do that? I mean, it doesn't matter if this is a plant. It doesn't matter who the person is. And it really doesn't matter, uh, you know, where she did it. Or it, 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 This is a simple question. And all you have to do is answer it. And so this immediate pivot to I'm a victim of Joe Biden, not a great piece of the cleanup. Now, she did get around today to saying, of course, the answer is slavery. Then she added, you know, several hundred other words. But this has been a rough news cycle for her because I think in New Hampshire, part of the strategy is they have a semi-open primary where independents can come in and vote in the Republican primary if they wish. I'm I'm guessing this is not what independent voters (laughs) want to hear out of a Republican they may be considering uh, coming in for. So it's been a rough, it's been a rough cycle. I wasn't a huge fan of the way she immediately pivoted to this blaming Joe Biden. Joe Biden didn't cause you to mess up. Yeah, it's really her first big stumble on the campaign trail. Uh, after Haley gave that radio interview this morning, she held another town hall in North Conway, New Hampshire. And here's part of what she said. By the grace of God, we did the right thing and slavery is no more. But the lessons of what that bigger issue with the Civil War are, is that let's not forget what came out of that, which is government's role, individual liberties, freedom for every single person. So, Lencia, I want to get your reaction to how she's trying to clarify and sort of clean up her remarks. Do you agree with Scott that all she had to do was come out and say that that it was slavery or what she's doing now, which is sort of defending her comments that she said yesterday, but also saying, yes, it was slavery? Well, she absolutely should have come out forcefully and said that it was about slavery. But let's be honest here. Nikki Haley would have had to talk about the position that South Carolina took in the Civil War that actually isn't on par with what she said later around freedom and individual liberties. The reality is this Republican Party actually does not want to talk about the sins in our history around race, particularly. We know that from the book bans, the dismantling of affirmative action and DEI initiatives. It's also ironic that she talks about how what came out of it were individual liberties and freedom when, again, the Republican Party has taken away so many of those, especially as we saw around abortion and a lot of these Supreme Court decisions that are coming about. And so Nikki Haley is doing what she has been doing before, talking out of both sides of her mouth to make it seem as though she's a moderate and unifying candidate. But we know as someone running to be the nominee for the Republican Party, what they stand for. And she is just as extreme as the rest of them, whether or not her rhetoric matches their tone. Scott, let me move on to Chris Christie, who, as you know, is facing pressure to drop out of the race to sort of consolidate support for a clear alternative to Donald Trump. Uh, His campaign is pushing back in a new ad in New Hampshire. Take a listen to it. Some people say I should drop out of this race. Really? I'm the only one saying Donald Trump is a liar. He pits Americans against each other. His Christmas message to anyone who disagrees with him? Rotten hell. 
So, Scott, he's making his case to voters in New Hampshire, but we're just 18 days out from the Iowa caucuses. We know it's not a good sign when you have to defend why you're not dropping out of the race. Do you think it's time for him to do just that? Well, it depends on what his motivations are. I mean, he's not really competitive in Iowa, but he may be competitive in New Hampshire for some of those independent voters. We were talking about some of those Republicans who have never really been huge fans of Donald Trump. The trouble is, if his stated goal is to stop Donald Trump or to eliminate Donald Trump from this primary, you just look at the polling right now. The person that is most capable of doing that in New Hampshire is Haley, and he's obviously digging into her a little bit with the 9 or 10% that he's pulling in some of these surveys. So, you know, if your goal is to get rid of Trump and you're impeding the one person who might be able to do it, then you have to start questioning, well, what's my real motivation? Am I thinking strategically or am I thinking selfishly? Now, it is true. He is the only person running the pure anti-Trump campaign. He's not wrong about that. I just wonder whether there's enough votes in that strategy uh, to finish in the, you know, in the top two in that state. Alencia, what do you think? Listen, I don't think there are enough of the anti-Trump voters in the Republican Party base to actually give Christie what he needs to perform a, well, we're after Christmas, but Christmas miracle. That's what he's looking for. But it will be interesting to see what happens in the new year again as the election approaches and where will those voters go, especially with what has happened with Nikki Haley. And again, what will Chris Christie do after New Hampshire and what will he do to stop Donald Trump if he doesn't become the nominee? That's the question that I have for a lot of Republicans who constantly say, I want to stop Donald Trump. But if he becomes the nominee, will you throw your support publicly behind President Biden? Good questions. Uh, Lencia Johnson, Scott Jennings, thank you. Well, coming up for us, the house where four University of Idaho students were viciously murdered was demolished earlier today. Why some families wanted to wait before tearing it down. International lead, an off-campus house where four University of Idaho students were stabbed to death last year, was demolished earlier today. You can see how the entire structure has now been torn down. Some of the victims' families had begged to delay the demolition until after the trial. CNN's Veronica Miracle is on the scene in Moscow, Idaho, for us. So, Veronica, why did these families want the demolition delayed, and why did the school then decide to move forward with it? Well, beyond in the hours before the demolition, two of the victims' families, they were urging the university as well as the Laytow County Prosecutor's Office to reconsider tearing this down because they believe that this was a key piece of evidence that could have been used during a trial. They argued that a jury could have come and taken a look themselves, looked at the exterior, seen some of the different vantage points, maybe go inside to see the different entries and exits, and that could have weighed on their decision. And so that's why they were really urging urging the university to reconsider, but neither the defense team nor the prosecution uh, disagreed with dis this decision. The university has been in conversation with the Latah County Prosecutor's Office for months. Ever since they received this house, they have been wanting to tear it down. And so they have been in conversation with them. And the prosecutor's office actually told the university uh, last week that because the interior of the house is so altered from or, or was so altered, rather, from the time of the crime, because there were hazmat crews that had to come and clean up. Uh, they also removed all of the belongings of the victims. They would not have been able to bring a jury in by Idaho code. So when the university learned that, they decided this needed to come down. 
Now, the university, uh, they are going to make sure that there is a memorial garden here, but otherwise this is going to be turned into an empty lot, and that's uh, their plan for the foreseeable future. Biana? All right, Veronica Miracle, thank you. I want to bring in defense and trial attorney Misty Maris for more on this. So, Misty, by not objecting to the demolition of the House, in your view, are prosecutors taking a risk here? It was actually very surprising to me that there was no objection from the prosecutors, Biana. And the reason is whether or not the jury is going to have a site visit, actually go to the location where the crimes were committed, is something that you want to leave till the trial is unfolding and make that determination at that point. By demolishing the property, once it's gone, it's gone. So now prosecutors have lost that opportunity to even have that be a, a potential factor to the jury when they're deliberating in this case. So I was quite surprised there was no pushback on that front. For the bigger picture on the case, talk about what we can expect to see unfold over the next few months. Yeah, over the next few months, right now we're in the throes of evidentiary exchanges. Koberger is right now challenging some of the DNA evidence. Uh, there's maybe the trial goes forward this summer. We don't even have a trial date. Again, beyond a little surprising, House is demolished before we even have that trial date. Uh, but I would expect, obviously, the defense, they're going to be uh, laying out their arguments. We're going to see that as the trial unfolds. And, and really, I foreshadow that one of the defense arguments is going to be it's not feasible for one individual to commit this crime with multiple deaths in this time span. Again, bringing back the relevance of this house, the way the floors, the logistics, the staircases, what we would see and hear from those perspectives in the home. Uh, and so that is really what we're going to see as this case unfolds, these legal theories being extrapolated in the courtroom, ultimately at trial. Yeah, and successfully the defense tried to dismiss this case, uh, but it is going forward. You'll be following it for us. Misty Maris, thank you. Thank well, you. coming up, the disturbing questions about what our children are seeing about the Israel-Hamas war on their phones that you may not know about. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. In our tech lead, we live in an era where more and more people get their news from social media, which raises disturbing questions about what our children and young teens are seeing about the Israel-Hamas war that you may not know about. The Wall Street Journal recently published an investigation of content about the Israel-Hamas war served up by TikTok. The article headline is, How TikTok Brings War Home to Your Child. It concludes that the app, quote, can feed young users a stream of intense, polarized and hard to verify videos about the Israel-Hamas war. Now, TikTok strongly disputed these findings when asked by CNN and The Wall Street Journal for comment. Here to discuss both sides is Emerson Brooking. He's a resident senior fellow for the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab. He's also quoted in The Wall Street Journal article. So thank you so much for joining us. 
The journal says that it created TikTok accounts, set the account age to 13 years old, then programmed a handful of automated bots to scroll through TikTok feeds, only pausing on conflict-related videos. The article goes on to say that within hours after signing up, TikTok began serving some accounts' highly polarized content, reflecting often extreme pro-Palestinian or pro-Israel positions about the conflict, many stoked fear. The journal cited one video urging viewers to arm themselves. Others contained end-of-the-world scenarios. Now, here's TikTok's response. The experiment was designed by the Wall Street Journal to produce a predetermined result to advance a false narrative and in no way reflects the behaviors or experiences of real teens on TikTok. It goes on to say that real people like, share, and search for content, favorite videos, post comments, follow others, and enjoy a wide range of content on TikTok. A big setup to you, but my question is, how do you view this? Mm-hmm. Well, first, I think the Wall Street Journal uh, research just shows the accessibility and immediacy of this war online. Uh, the fact that your kid, without your knowledge, can be uh, being served up this deeply disturbing content. And that this content isn't necessarily graphic, but it is often decontextualized and it can be deeply distressing. And I should add also that it generally is coming from influencers or people who are trying to push a particular point of view. Very rarely is it coming from uh, journalists or any journalistic organization. Yeah, and that's what's really problematic about it. You had even said that you don't have to doom scroll. You can just sit and watch and let the platform do the rest. Now, TikTok points to its content controls and says that they should be factored into any reporting about this. But we should note TikTok's own website says that the time spent watching a specific video is generally weighed more heavily than other factors. Factors like device settings generally receive lower weight compared to other factors. So in plain English for us, the way the app works is that if you pause to watch a video or watch a video for a longer period of time, you're likely to see more of it. So even if a user or a parent sets these restrictions, do we even have a sense of how much these restrictions matter? I think in some cases, these restrictions do matter. No restrictions were set in the case of the Wall Street Journal's research. But yeah, when you're thinking about the TikTok algorithm, it's not just videos watched, it's shares, it's comments, um, it's likes, it's sometimes dozens of different little signals. But I think the bigger problem here is that the TikTok algorithm is so much a black box, even relative to other social media platforms. Uh, TikTok's statement is correct, but Wall Street Journal had to do their research this way because there's very little other path to study the TikTok platform. Now, TikTok goes on to say that since October 7th, it has prevented teen accounts from viewing over one million videos containing violence or graphic content. What's missing here is the denominator. But we do know about 150 million Americans view TikTok per day. Uh, in your view, is TikTok doing enough? I think with regard to graphic content, TikTok has done better than other platforms. But it doesn't have to be graphic to be disturbing or to present one side of the war and not the other, uh, to be filled with disinformation and to mislead people. TikTok has to do more here. But then this also just uh, casts a light on how vulnerable we are, all are, just as users of the Internet, uh, when there's this online conflict taking place around us. So I hope this is going to be a wake-up call for parents to think more seriously about the content their children are consuming and to try to have those conversations themselves instead of having it mediated through a kid's smartphone.
So what exactly can a parent do and what are the conversations that can be had uh, with children when parents may not even know how to really navigate these new platforms? Mm -hmm. Well, TikTok does make it pretty easy to uh, set certain parental controls. These parental controls were not used in the case of the Wall Street Journal study, but they can be. But I think it's more, it's just understanding that uh, for most kids, who are, most kids are on TikTok and most kids are seeing war content. So it's not really a matter of um, if kids are seeing this. So it is important to try to have those conversations, uh, to try to engage a bit more um, with what your kid's seeing to help bring it context or to help have a conversation about it. I, I don't think that this content, that this unfortunately reflects the reality we live in. Um, it shouldn't necessarily be removed from public view, even for children, but yeah. it has to be presented in the right way. And we should expand this conversation later down the road beyond just TikTok to other social media platforms. Um, Emerson Brooking, thank you so much for your insights. Thank you. Well, an American man wrongfully detained in Russia speaks exclusively to CNN on the five-year anniversary of his detention. We'll tell you what he says next. In our world lead, today Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told families with loved ones being held by Hamas that talks are currently underway to free them. Sadly, we also learned today that the last American-Israeli woman believed to be held by Hamas is not alive. 70-year-old Judy Weinstein Haggai is now said to have been killed by Hamas on October 7th. The death of her husband, 73-year-old God Haggai, was reported last week. Both of their bodies are still being held by Hamas in Gaza. Let's bring in Elliot Gotkin, who is live for us in Tel Aviv, for more on this. So, Elliot, what can you tell us about this death of this American-Israeli hostage? And where do negotiations stand, as we heard from the prime minister telling families that they're open again? Prime Minister Netanyahu says that those conversations are ongoing. We know the efforts are ongoing. Just the other day, President Biden spoke with the Emir of Qatar, uh, which has been a key mediator and was a key mediator in getting that first truce, which ended on December the 1st, in place, which involved uh, hostages being returned, hostages that have been abducted by Hamas during its murderous rampage of October the 7th in exchange for the release of Palestinian prisoners inside Israeli jails. Uh, we don't know if we are any closer to seeing another truce uh, coming into effect, but we do know that fighting has, if anything, intensified between Israel and Hamas. And so far as we're aware, there is no additional truce and uh, hostage for prisoner swap on the horizon. As far as Judy Weinstein is concerned, as you say, an American, Israeli and also Canadian citizen, 70 years, 70 years old, mother of four, grandmother of seven. Uh, she also leaves behind her 95-year-old mother. Now, when President Biden spoke with uh, her daughter, uh, one of her daughters, uh, a couple of weeks ago, he said he was praying uh, for the well-being and safe return of Judy Weinstein. Today, the president has put out another statement saying that I will never forget what their daughter and the family members of other Americans held hostage in Gaza have shared with me. They have been living through hell for weeks. No family should have to endure such an ordeal. 
and I reaffirm the pledge we have made to all the families of those still held hostage. We will not stop working to bring them home. Now, as you said, Biana, uh, Judy was the last living American woman hostage still being held in the Gaza Strip. There are still six American citizens, men, who are still being held uh, and are believed to be alive inside the Gaza Strip uh, by Hamas. Clearly, President Biden wants them home uh, and Israel and the families of those still being held in Gaza are putting a lot of pressure on the government here to do everything that it can to bring those hostages home and to bring them home now. And we won't stop our coverage until they're all home and released as well. Elliot Gottkin, thank you. Well, continuing with our world lead, today marks five years that American citizen and former Marine Paul Whelan has been wrongfully detained in a Russian prison. He was imprisoned on espionage charges that he has consistently denied. Joining me now is CNN reporter Jennifer Hansler, who's gained unique access to Paul over the years and actually just spoke to him today. Jennifer, what did he have to say? Well, Bianca, he really was pushing President Biden to do everything he can to bring him home after this five-year mark. He called on the president to take every resource available as if it was his own son who had been taken hostage. He also told me how much today is impacting him. He described it as incredibly difficult for a number of reasons. Take a listen to what he had to say. realize that today is the five-year anniversary and so they've been asking me questions about what the government's doing or not doing you know i i have photographs of my dog my family friends i took those out and i was looking at them and that you know is sometimes bittersweet um it, it's it's a typical day here in the, the slave labor factory and of course, he has also expressed concerns, Bianca, that he will not make it home to see his parents who are in their 80s. He has already lost friends, his beloved pets that he references there. So today it is a very difficult day and he describes it as surreal, Bianca. Where does his case stand right now? Well, there's been very little tangible progress on his case. We know that the U.S. put forward a proposal to free both Whelan and Evan Gershkovich, the detained Wall Street Journal reporter, to the Russians in recent months. The Russians rejected that proposal. Uh, we know the U.S. is still working on the cases to try to bring both of these men home. They say this is something they're working on day by day. Secretary Blinken said they will not rest until they see Whelan and other wrongful detainees come home. But as of now, the Russians are not playing ball on this. Yeah. And as you mentioned, there's a trend in recent years of Russian detaining citizens from their adversaries. I mean, Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, a woman, Alsu Karmasheva, an American journalist from Radio Free Europe who also holds Russian citizenship, is being wrongfully detained by Russia. Talk about the stakes of this at this point. Well, this is incredibly high stakes. And Russia seems taking these Americans somewhat as political pawns. We can see the U.S. Uh, seeing this trend as well in the way that they have designated both Evan and Paul as wrongful detainees, which allows the hostage affairs uh, special envoy to work on their cases. It allows them to have a lot more leverage in terms of trying to negotiate that RFERL journalist. They said they are still uh, deliberating whether she is wrongfully detained, but it certainly seems to be uh, the trend there that they are just taking people who have that American passport to try to leverage some sort of prisoner swap or other uh, confidence building something out of the U.S. to try to get the U.S. to bring these people home, uh, be honest. So we'll, we'll watch and see whether they can actually make a deal to bring Evan and Paul back. 
Yeah, you've been doing such important reporting, constantly being in touch with Paul. I know you also have a relationship with his family. How are they doing? Well, this is also obviously a very difficult day for them. Uh, his sister Elizabeth said it's as if they're standing on the ledge of a cliff looking across perhaps the Grand Canyon and trying to figure out a way to bring her brother home. She said this has taken a financial toll on their family as well. She has made a number of trips to DC to meet with officials over the past five years and they have been really strong advocates for their brother and they say they know there are efforts underway by the administration to bring him home, but it is very difficult to see such little progress to this point. Biana. Again, thank you for all the work that you've been doing on this case, Jennifer Hansler. Up next, sometimes flights are canceled for a reason. See what happened when one plane tried landing in a storm. Ah, I might hear that vortex crashing down on me. Listen to it. Ticks. I think that's exactly how I would react when seeing this. That is an American Airlines jet from Los Angeles landing in London yesterday in some serious wind. An aviation fanatic caught the moment on camera. Heavy crosswinds shook the plane just before it touched the ground, causing that wild wobbling you see there. Now, fortunately, aside from a brief scare and maybe a little nausea, everyone was fine. The plane landed safely. Thank goodness. Well, coming up right after the holidays, Jake Tapper and Dana Bash will moderate CNN's Republican presidential debate. That will be on January 10th, just five days before the Iowa caucuses. The debate is live from Des Moines at 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on CNN. And this weekend, holiday tradition continues right here on CNN. Anderson Cooper and Andy Cohen will host their seventh New Year's Eve Live. Coverage starts Sunday night at 8 o'clock Eastern as they count down to midnight from Times Square. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 